This is a Diet of Brussels. Welcome to one of our periodic interviews, uh, which I've tried to do over the years. Uh, today we're talking about gender and gender aspects and ways, gendered ways of looking at the Brexit process, both in the broad sense of the, the, the politics and the, the culture of it all, but also more narrowly the way that academics talk about this uh, subject too. Joining me uh, in this discussion is uh, Professor Joe Shaw, who's uh, Chair of European Institutions at Edinburgh Law School, uh, who joins us uh, down a usually pretty good line from her sabbatical at the Helsinki Collegium in Finland. And sitting next to me uh, at the time we were doing this was uh, and is uh, Professor Roberta Garina, who is Professor of Politics at the University of Surrey. Now, both of them are specialists in their different areas, uh, and that's one of the things that we'll talk about, that they are interested in gender questions, but that is not all that they do. And I completely recommend their work to both of you uh, for those things, and you can find uh, details about them online. We're also going to talk about some uh, different kinds of uh, things and resources, uh, and as you'll hear, I promised that I would give you links to them. So two that are of particular interest here are the Athena Swan uh, system, which is run by uh, a unit uh, called the Equality Challenge Unit, and you can find out about their work and about the Athena Swan Charter, which deals with uh, gender equality, at ecu.ac.uk. And you can also find uh, a very good resource about uh, women experts in the field of politics, uh, the PSA Women and Politics Group, who are at PSA Women Politics, all one word, dot com. So, sit back and listen to us talk. Okay. Right, so, we started recording. So, uh, welcome to uh, my two guests, Joe Shaw, Roberta Garina. So, we're going to try this uh, with the, the technology of uh, Skype, because, uh, Joe, you're in uh, Finland at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, Roberta's sitting next to me, so that's less problematic. Um <laughs> So just to kind of set the scene, the reason we're, we're talking is that you two uh, rightly gave me a hard time on Twitter uh, in recent weeks because I've been uh, tweeting on panels, at events that have had just men or almost just men on them. And uh, frankly, uh, I feel like I should learn more about uh, what that uh, produces in the way of problems and imbalances in our understanding. So we're going to try and cover, I think, three different areas. First, we're going to talk about gender and the sort of gender impacts and gender dimensions (coughs) of Brexit. But also, to come back to that starting point, talking about why don't we deal with these issues uh, sufficiently and appropriately and then also thinking about ways that we can uh, try to address that so uh, I think we've kind of we've got 
that as a kind of an agreed sort of structure, but we'll, we'll see how, how we go. So um, I don't know who wants to go first. Joe, you, you've come furthest virtually. Um, <laughs> why, why, gender and Brexit, you know, what, what is it that we should be thinking about in terms of issues and impacts and the way that gender issues structure the way we, we've uh, had Brexit represented to us? Uh, okay, so so I'm coming at this from a, some somewhat a, a helicopter perspective in the sense that having 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 worked on on gender issues as an academic in the past on on media law and gender on mainstreaming on um, uh, equality mainstreaming equality various other um, topics I don't I don't uh, really work directly in those topics but what I try to do is to ensure that issues around gender. Um, intersectional issues that also incorporate um, uh, ethnicity, race, class, and so on, are um, play some role in, in, in my research. Plus, I've um, just to give a bit of background for listeners who, who don't know me or just think I'm some sort of EU lawyer. I spent um, I spent quite a lot of time in, in university administration doing things which. Um, raised my antennae for questions about representation of women, women's voice, uh, different diverse voices within the academy. And so that, that's part of the background to it. And specifically, the last significant piece of um, activity that I undertook in that sort of managerial capacity was chairing a self-assessment committee for the school that I'm in when we applied for an Athena Swan bronze um, uh, accreditation and that raised my sensitivity to some some of these questions. Uh, and um, so, in terms of the the, the, the substance of, of, of Brexit, I suppose where I'm coming from in terms of, of, of observing <laughs> what's happening is that I can see that the whole of the the as it were the British state apparatus is being consumed by this. In fact, it's, it's, it's an existential threat to the British state. And in a way, that seems to be the sort of conditions under which issues about gender get swept away because somehow they're issues about, they're frothy issues that, that you know, we can do when, when times are good. We can worry about, um, you know, um, gender equality, I don't know, pensions for women or childcare, maternity, and so on. But this is almost like it's back to the future. It's back to the 1970s, um, which I remember a bit, in the 1980s, which I remember a lot, uh, where it, it was extremely hard to, to raise issues around um, childcare, maternity benefits, and so on and so forth, to, to, into the mainstream. And yet they are, they are central to how we perceive ourselves as a society. And it seems to me that something very similar is happening with Brexit, that because it's an existential threat and because it consumes so much state capacity, um, it, it, it's very, very hard to bring issues about gender and power um, in, in a sort of an intersectional analysis to, to, the, cent, to, the, center of, um, to the center of concern. I, I don't know whether that's that's something that struck you as well, Rebecca. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually, I was not going to do any research on on Brexit when um, when the referendum started happening. And I and I well, it has consumed really the la the best part of the last eighteen months of my life. And the reason why I came to this, it was just out of sheer frustration, 
that uh, what I see as key issues as, as a scholar of EU politics and particularly gender equality policies, both at the European and national level, were not being addressed by either campaign during the EU referendum. Um, but also the lack of presence of women and the, the lack of visibility of women as commentators, as leaders, as analysts, uh, or even as citizens in the context of what was supposed to be this watershed moment, um, this opportunity for a generation for great political engagement. And, um, and, and for me, really, the, the key moment came when when the BBC started reporting that they wanted to talk to women about women and Brexit, but they couldn't find any women. And, um, and that really was a signal that something needed to be said and needed to, to really be done in a more methodical way. And that's why I started embarking upon this project, well, the, the projects that I'm currently working on. But what I found is that it's, um, uh, in terms of our own discipline, but also the broader public debate, um, I've been confined to the gender silo uh, in a way, so which is the antithesis of, of mainstreaming. Um, people want to know about the impact of gender and Brexit on women, sometimes, very, very occasionally, uh, they want to hear about it, mostly if it's International Women's Day. And that, again, reflects the way that we're approaching the subject. So I've actually stopped responding to requests uh, to write uh, blogs and pieces uh, on the occasion of International Women's Day because you know, gender equality, gender as a structure of power doesn't just, should not be recognised and does not just happen on one day a year. Um, but I, I found uh, the discipline uh, and actually this kind of crisis uh, generated by Brexit uh, as a real test for both um, for both mainstreaming in terms of the politics uh, that are happening all around us, both high politics and low politics, but also as a test of our discipline as to whether or not uh, we have engaged with feminist analysis, with intersectional analysis in a meaningful way. And I think we failed that test fairly spectacularly over the last 18 months. I don't, I don't know if that's too harsh of an assessment. <laughs> Right. So, I, I, so, that, so, so that would be a that would be a message to your discipline of political science. Right. I mean, of course, I'm I'm an outsider to that. Mm. As I say, I'm I'm some sort of lawyer, but I'm not sure that we've done any better either. No, I actually I was thinking more specifically about EU studies, um, right. because right. of the kind of the way that we've always studied the EU um, gender has. I mean. Since I certainly since I started researching the topic of gender equality policies uh, in the EU, there was there was a scattering of, of work that was being done, but now it's really blossomed as a field. But we have we've siloed in a way ourselves uh, by looking at gender equality issues, and and only recently we started looking at the unintended intended and unintended consequences on traditionally gender neutral areas, which we know are not gender neutral at all. They're deeply gendered by themselves, but um, we don't see it as an area where gender is at work. And Brexit, I think like austerity, like crisis more generally, um, is what you were saying earlier, focuses the mind of the state apparatus on dealing with this kind of imminent threat and it relegates citizens' rights, it relegates social justice, it relegates uh, equality more generally 
to second order issue and uh, is seen as, uh, I guess, um, acceptable um, collateral damage um, mm. of, the, of this process. Mm. I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of the difficulty of uh, you, you both saying these things and then me saying, so tell me about the gender aspects of, <laughs> of Brexit, which is precisely what we're trying mm. to, to get past. Um, I, I guess at the same time, I know... But they're everything. And I think that's, I think that's maybe what I, I want to I get from you is how can you explain to me but to to our listeners how it pervades everything and it's not just about women you know if i'm going to sort of take a a, a very crass view of 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 mm. gender um you know how, how how does it pervade our understanding of law of politics okay well it's it's about the way for instance we conduct negotiations which issues do we deem to be most important it is about the structures um that pervade the state apparatus the values that we put forward the kind of i guess if you wish the kind of country we we want mm-hmm. britain to be in the aftermath of exiting the eu uh do we want to it to be a country where business interests are all pervasive and they are driving the social policy agenda or do we want it to be a country that uh, values issues such as equality diversity social justice Um, because a lot of the kind of uh, work that is being done is being cast under the shadow of crisis and therefore is removed from the kind of ideological dimension and the political dimension. In a way, we have stopped seeing Brexit itself, the process and the outcomes, the referendum, as deeply ideological processes, which they are, not just in terms of political ideologies, but the kind of gender regime that will be established after we've left, uh, we left the EU, I think. Yeah, Joe. I, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with, with any of that. And we have. We have warned you that. Um, that uh, You'll be agreeing uh, with each other. We <laughs> generally agree with each other. I would. I think. I, I think I would add the word power to that yes. because um, it, it, you know this has been. This is uh, both both the referendum campaign, but also um, the uh, the. Um, uh, the, the the post-referendum process, the way that it's been handled by the current government, has has sort of um, uh, made it increasingly hard to to speak truth to power, and also to for people to keep telling, keep keep arguing that that power is not just some sort of um, you know thing that 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 evades critique. It is something precisely that needs to be critiqued in terms of its. Um, uh, its, its ideological content, its structures, its symbolism, its normativity. Um, so the use of the use of, of law in different spheres. And so you know when people are talking about, um, for example, relations between the executive, parliament, and courts, which have come up in the context of Brexit, that isn't that is that is an area where um, where, where power comes into it. Just take for example, uh, you know the figure the. Uh, the gendered, racialized figure of, of Gina Miller, uh, who who was uh, behind the initial Article 50 case about um, 
the different roles of Parliament Court and the Executive in relation to the uh, the, the tendering of the Article 15 notification and the way in which her um, figure was portrayed and played with in, in the media. That's a, a, a desperately gendered um, process that's... Uh, um, and, and that's not just sort of saying somehow, oh, women suffer more. It's not just about women suffering more. It's about being aware of the fact that, that, that who, who we are as people within law, if you will, um, is not is not just it's not just something that is. It is something that um, that that is uh, that reflects our, our diverse should reflect our diversity. And the simple point about having, you know, people keep coming back to the question about. Um, you know, why do we need, for example, a more diverse uh, judiciary? What, you know, we've only ever had one woman member of the Supreme Court. And in a way, it's the same. It's a simple point that different, uh, different diverse points speaking, different points of view being given, being given uh, space and time to express themselves, to develop a voice, uh, to develop an audience as well, because there's, there's always that stupid thing like, you know, Martina Navratilova is worth less than, than uh, John McEnroe. You know, is that some sort of objective in, in tennis commentary? Is that some sort of objective expression? No, it's because of audiences and structures. Mm. And so it, it's, it's about saying that diversity um, in, uh, in public policy, in, in, uh, in uh, state institutions, including the judiciary, is a good of, in and of itself because it allows a wider range of arguments, by definition, to, to come to the fore and to be, to be turned over and to be considered and to be rejected if, if, if need be. And that, that point has been, I think, very much lost in you know, the, 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 the whole sort of referendum campaign and, and the post-referendum post debate, which, which also reveals, I'm realising I'm being quite stream of consciousness here, but there we go, um, the post-referendum um, process has revealed something sort of utterly ironic. You know, um, it's not photoshopped, is it? There is genuinely a picture of Theresa May in circulation wearing that T-shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like. I mean, I'm correct about that, aren't I? You know, because our, our, second, our second woman prime minister in the UK um, turn, turns up at a, a point of crisis. And, and in a way, 1979, I suppose, was, was a similar point of crisis. And she also managed to turn that into an even greater point of crisis by her, um, her use and her appropriation of the signs and symbols of the, um, of the Falklands War, the, uh, the Malvinas War in, 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 19, in 1982. Um, and in a way, um, Theresa May is doing something very similar um, around um, appropriating certain types of signs and symbols of, of Brexit to, uh, to uh, reinforce her position within her party and, and, the, and the position of her party in relation to this fraught question about, um, about Brexit and where the UK is going. And as, as Roberta has said, it, this is closing down so many avenues for debate about uh, the type of, of society that we want to live. And, and anyone who is you know, studying the media would be able to, to tell us in more detail uh, why that, that is. Now, I have my own views as a citizen about the type of society, um, but as a scholar, I'm, I'm interested in what types of structures uh, promote and, and, and facilitate um, a more diverse range of voices, because I'm convinced by the argument that diversity itself is one of is a value in, in and of itself, because it does 
um, bring different voices to the table. And that's the, you know, that's been the fundamental argument as to why we need a more diverse judiciary. If, if just um, on the kind of stream of consciousness, it's something that struck me as Joe was, uh, as you were talking, is um, the kind of challenge to, if you wish, rationality that is actually taking place. So the challenge to the experts, to to science, to providing evidence-based policy uh, in favour of ideological and emotive kind of arguments, which have often been associated with, I guess, the feminine. Uh, but we have this kind of, this juncture between what is becoming a highly masculinized um, uh, executive, despite the fact that Theresa May is uh, is prime minister, because if we look at the kind of leading figures um, of Brexit, um, its uh, gender is being performed and played out in a very, very public space and the kind of disciplining of um, of Theresa May as well in terms of her ability to maintain the cabinet and unity. I think this is actually quite interesting. But it also speaks to the way that dissenting voices uh, or those that are seen to be as critical voices are treated within the public space. And I'm thinking specifically about the kind of uh, trolling and criticism that many women, um, you mentioned Gina Miller, but I think more generally, women speaking out, uh, providing evidence to bear about the impact that this process uh, is going to have on gender equality policies. I mean, reflecting on my own experience of being at the receiving end of, of trolls, the focus has, has been on why is it that we're having this discussion and are you blowing it out of proportion? Are you exaggerating? There was never any meaningful engagement with the data, the evidence, uh, the methods that were brought to bear in making the argument that actually in the current status, well, taking it from the current status quo and the direction of travel, the likelihood for gender equality policies in the UK is going to is going to be bleak uh, because in the context of crisis, what we have seen uh, is uh, historically is a retrenchment on, of those kind of rights. And I think this speaks to power and how power is manipulated and how gender is a structure of power and how we we're going to interface with it and the long-term impact that it will have on specific demographic groups uh, within the country. It forces us to think about gender not just as women, but you know the diversity uh, that is encapsulated within this category. It forces us to think about intersectional issues and um, and yeah, it's uh, it highlights the deeply ideological processes that we are embarking upon without uh, meaningful engagement with with the data, with the evidence, yeah. One question that, that kind of occurs is, you know, if I think about crisis, for me, I'm, I'm conditioned to see crisis as opportunity, that at moments of disruption there are opportunities that present themselves. And I hear what both of you are saying about how this crisis has, again, pushed gender to a second secondary kind of position, do you see any potential in the the, the the kind of the tumult of politics and society to to advance gender as an issue, either narrowly, more generally, structurally, or is it is it all 
bad? Well, because it's ideological, it depends on what you want at the end of the process. So absolutely, we can end up with a better kind of equality framework uh, as a result of this. After all, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but in the Nordic countries, it was feminists who objected or um, who are more likely to be Eurosceptics um, traditionally than other members of the population because they were they were seeing this kind of neoliberal project as a threat to well-established social democratic uh, rights that they were enjoying uh, within within the Nordic states. Uh, so it's absolutely a political choice with the kind of country that we're going to have at the end of the process, but. This is being played out now, and what we're saying in terms of the crisis that is facing us, the ideological positions of of this particular government in relation to crisis, is not one to actually increase the kind of uh, regulations that protect rights, uh, women's rights, workers' rights, minority rights, etc., but one that is actually pushing for for liberalisation, for deregulation, etc. After all. If we take the campaigns uh, during the EU referendum um, as a starting point, when they start talking about red tape, the focus is on, on, on workers' rights in actually making British businesses more competitive. And, and this is where kind of academic engagement, uh, I think, has been shut out of the discussion because it's what we were saying before. It's about speaking truth to power. Do you want you know, what kind of society do you want? And are you actually going to articulate it? At the moment, there is no meaningful articulation about this, the impact that the policies that we are embarking upon or will be embarking upon will have on different groups, women being one of them. Joe? Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I don't really, that's, I, I would just be repeating the excellent points that, uh, um, that Roberta's has made, so I won't. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what? Okay. Let's let's try a different thing. Um, <clears throat> if we're thinking about the the costs of that, what you know, I think we've talked about the costs. But what what do we miss if we don't think about these issues? Is it is it about that big? Uh, existential question about where we are heading and what kind of society we are or are there also uh, how um, you know more more specific kind of dimensions that you think are, are lost in the debate and that uh, will have consequences that get uh, um, that, that, that will become clear as we go through Joe um, well if, if one were to um, say adopt the position that you know the most most important thing here is to is to try to um, to uh, make the best of Brexit, yeah, in terms of our society, I think that that it it, it will foster in the long term greater public trust, greater public engagement greater public commitments if um, a, a more diverse set of voices are seen impacting upon that debate. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's in, indubitably the case that um, 
Brexit arrives at, in the context of a of a more general crisis about representation, about legitimacy of the of the political class, and and so on. And um, if if um, both the political speaking in relation to Brexit and the commentary and the academic commentary and the para-academic commentary is, is seen to be continuing, as it were, business as usual, then, um, or indeed worse than business as usual, because actually, uh, you know, because of this point about existential crisis leads to additional uh, retrenchments, then I, I think that um, it, it will be... Um, uh, it will make for a, a worse, um, you know, a, a, a worse process, both a worse process, but also a worse outcome. So I think, you know, uh, greater diversity can lead to better public engagement, better public trust uh, with the uh, with with public institutions, and might help to uh, redress address some of the um, legitimation crises that are existing, you know, precisely now. And perhaps help to um, uh, perhaps help to 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 um, increase public public trust in, in public institutions. And that that kind of takes us, I think, into sort of a, a, a next area of discussion, which is that if I look at my timeline uh, on my social media, I see lots of uh, manuals getting uh, marked up, called out. Uh, why? Do, I'm going to start with academics as a starting point, but I, I think it's a, it's a broader issue. Why do we find it so difficult to address these issues and these dimensions and these aspects? Um, where is the problem? I, you know, Roberta's talked about uh, the BBC saying they can't find women, which is evidently not, uh, uh, well, it seems to be more about poor background research than uh, about a lack of actual women who who can talk so what what's the cause of the problem is it a blindness to the issue is it uh, an unwillingness to deal with it an incapacity where do you see the the problems do you want to start well, Joe? <laughs> I've, got, I've got pretty strong views about this <laughs> i think that um, that 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 uh, um, one of the interesting things that Athena Swan does, which I think is quite an quite a useful tool for um, um, universities institutions, is to is to set benchmarks and say, you know, thirty, forty percent of your speakers or your voices should be should be female, and one can also set benchmarks around other types of, of, of diversity as well. And, and to a certain extent, then that becomes about you know responsiveness, leadership, and so on and so forth. But then the question becomes. How do you how do you achieve that? And there's been a fair amount of interesting discussion on on Twitter about um, Neil Ferguson's Niall Ferguson's um, uh, epic manual for the was it the conference on applied history? Yes. Which is precisely the area of history where women are really actually in the UK quite prominent. No, I know that from having you know having helped my historian colleagues with pre preparing their, um, their 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 ref return for 2014. And looking at the impact aspects of that, um, so um, it, it's it's really not that difficult because I think that the major problem that I, I see when I challenge people about um, 
about their compilation of panels and speakers and special issues and edited volumes and things like that is is um, is that people are, are far too quick to invite people who look like themselves. So it's exactly the same when when you're chairing interview panels. I've interviewed, I've chaired many many interview panels over the years, and occasionally I've been asked to make a um, uh, 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 to do a tiebreak because I generally wouldn't wouldn't vote on an interview panel. I would guide the discussion, discuss with my colleagues, and so on and so forth, and see where it's leading. Um, but one or two occasions we've had um, we've had uh, equal support for two types of candidates, and I said, well, I'm going to call down two two candidates, and I'm I'm going I I said I adopted the position in terms of the tiebreak that, that you know each was thought to be incredibly desirable. I'm going to pick the candidate who looks less like you now, because um, because that's the thing that's most difficult to do is to is to choose when you're in an in group is to choose people from from the out group, and um, and that that I think is what leads to so many um, uh, so many uh, books panels, conferences, or whatever, being, being dominated by, um, by a particular gender and uh, also um, the weaknesses in terms of representation of other, other minorities as well. Uh, too much focus on people who look in the broadest sense, when I say look, look like you, who are within your, 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 your in-group. Um, and uh, that then leads to um, another practice which um, Roberta has, has um, referred to, which is that you know people like her and people like me get constantly asked, well, can you help us to improve our diversity? And you sort of think, well, if I, if I had a pound for every time that, that had been asked, then I would be a very rich woman. Um, because I always put back and I say, no, it's your responsibility to reconstruct and reconsider your structures in order to ensure that your, um, your, your panel is balanced or this, that and the other. And you need to take responsibility for that. And to do that within the structure of Athena Swan is, is actually quite helpful because it, it allows you to um, perhaps once or twice cut short some conversations where you really think that after all these years in academia, certain people should should know better about these things by reference to a set of benchmarks that it's their professional duty uh, to, to, to look at. But then what's been, I think, very good about the last few years is that a number of, um, a number of um, colleagues, male colleagues, have really started to pick up on this and have started to understand that you know, it's also their responsibility not to sit on male-only panels. And they themselves have taken a commitment which can be made um, via, I think, Owen Barber's website on, online, not to sit on an all-male all, all, all panel. Sometimes it gets sprung on people, and then um, people that can then uh, sort of, as it were, raise that in, in, in conversation or in their presentation that they're unhappy about it. But for the most part, it's possible for uh, people to make inquiries. I also don't like sitting on a panel as being the only woman, um, and sometimes I, I, I use that as a reason um, why I, I wouldn't participate in such and such an activity unless they're prepared to make it more balanced. It's also horrible to participate as the token woman in a in a process. So I think there are so many things that, that people can do to uh, to ensure that um, there are more um, uh, more members of out groups participating in in, in these sorts of things. 
to add to I that. Don't think, I really don't think it's difficult, but asking women what how to sort it out is precisely no, what you should be doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, um, I mean, I fully agree with Joe. Simon would say point taken. No, no, I, no I, I, yeah, point taken. Um, the only thing that I would add to what Joe has been just saying, which I fully agree and endorse, is that actually what we're seeing in terms of the current discussions and the profiling of academics in in current debates and research in relations to Brexit is it reproduces the structures of academia. So when we put together conferences, panels, edited collections, books, etc., we often tap into our networks. And we know that there is a problem with women getting promoted. And Athena Swan has really highlighted this problem in terms of uh, women getting to senior positions within, within the sector, not just in political science, law, etc., but across the sector. And if you want only senior women to sit on certain panels, then it becomes very difficult to actually find a variety of different women to, to sit on those panels. But there has to be recognition from organizers that actually I, do, I don't know all the best people. There are other really good people out there who don't think like me, who don't actually do the same kind of work that I do, that who don't look like me. And perhaps I can just reach out to them and, and be honest and say, uh, look, we're looking f to expand the diversity of what we cover. Uh, this may be of interest to you, but if it's not of interest to you, how about you can refer me to someone else, therefore expanding your own networks. And also giving early career researchers an opportunity um, with a caveat. What I don't like is where early career researchers, uh, women in particular, are being thrown into the deep end without preparation as often the only woman represent, well, the only woman represented on a panel um, who then don't get to ask questions or get attacked and patronized because that just reproduces the structures. But when I think the lessons of Brexit are for us, both in terms of uh, scholars thinking about the process, the political nature of the process, is that uh, it is important to maintain this kind of, I guess it's advocacy work that we do within our own disciplines that, you know, keep kind of raising the issue because it matters, um, but also keep raising the issue within our own discipline because it has really highlighted the imbalances within academia more generally. And, you know, it's, it's about time that we start thinking more broadly and giving credit to the variety of people. So. I, my main frustration is that uh, Tony Hastrup did a fantastic job putting together a crowdsourced um, list of women who can speak about all sorts of issues relating to to EU politics, policies, law, economics, and and so on. And hardly anybody ever taps into that list to draw. Where can, on. Where can listeners? Oh, PSA Women in Politics uh, webpage. Um, you can find the list there. I think there are over 150 names added to that list. It took Tony and I about half an hour to come up with about 60 um, women uh, in the UK and across Europe who can comment on this kind of range of issues. The, the sources are there, the opportunities are there, and actually you don't even need a crowdsourced list of women who can contribute to this kind of debate. Uh, all you need is Google and Google Scholar, and actually you can find the information. Um, 
you know, we live in a in an era where information is readily available, so it's no excuse really. And we'll provide a, a link to that at the end of this episode, just to yeah, make sure. Fantastic. You might also want to explain Athena Swan as well, if, you, if there's some text surrounding um, the I'll, episode I'll, as well. I'll provide some of that. And I think that that's maybe the, the, the last question. You know, how much is it about, is this about intention and how much is it about action? You know, is it, is you know, Athena Swan, you've talked about Joe as a, as a means of moving people to requirements and, to, you know, to actions on the ground. But you've also talked, both of you, about the need for people to understand, uh, and particularly for uh, those uh, men who don't engage with it. You know, how much, what's the balance between those two things, between, you know, kind of structures and sort of intentions and motivations? Joe? Um, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I, 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 I've not, I, I, I always tend to, to focus on, on structures because you can deal with those sorts of issues without without offending anybody. Uh, so that's probably probably where I would where I'd want us to, to, to start off by, by looking at, at those those structures and, and, and frames for debate. Um, and you know um, the so far as it's the the, um, the ESRC is investing in um, in studies of, of post-Brexit Britain, then one hopes that there's going to be a very strong um, engagement with the sorts of questions that Roberta and I um, have been raising today. Because if, if there isn't in that commissioning process, then I think it's going to be um, weaker for, for that. But generally speaking, I, I, uh, uh, the SRC, in terms of its, its understanding of those types of intersectional questions, um, is an organisation that I, I think is, is is quite aware of, of, of some of those those issues at the organisational level. So I hope that that's going to be not difficult to make sure that those those sorts of questions are raised as as, as we go forward. Um, but but I, I guess I've been a, a little bit um, uh, surprised how how uh, dominated the uh, UK and EU can. Um, Activities have been at the senior level by by, by male academics, rather than it being perhaps a, a greater balance of, of different people. Um, so, including including women, it's been uh, it's been utterly disappointing at a, at a structural level, and that's not intended to criticise or comment upon any individual, all of whom have um, tremendous merits. But I think it is a little bit a little bit disappointing, and one wonders um, precisely why that's why that's happening. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so that would be my generally my preference to look at, at, at structures rather than. Um, but I do think that, that what has made the difference in terms of uh, making it a less wearing process to carry on raising these issues is the the prevalence of uh, the increasing prevalence of male feminists. Quite a lot of of whom have got 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 in, involved. They're, they're, you know, it's not to say that somehow once. Once men get involved in feminism, um, that you know somehow it's being diluted by that. On the contrary, I think it's 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 been um, it's been interesting and a, and a learning process for me to 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 reflect and to think back. Um, you know, my on my activism in my twenties in in the nineteen eighties when 
um, there was a certain sort of antagonism or, or questioning of the motives as to why men might get involved in, in, in women's movement activities or want to express solidarity. I think we've, we've, raised, we've got much better frames and structures for uh, male feminists to, to express what I, I increasingly think is a genuinely held view that the world is a better place when you know, the gender division of labor within the home is, is something that is a matter of everyone's concern, not just a matter, um, not just a private matter, but is, as it were, a, a public question about how, how, how division, the division of labor within the home is, is, is organized. And therefore, I think a lot of men have, have, have been able to get involved in that debate and say, you know, manuals are no good. We don't want to participate in them, not because we feel necessarily that, um, that you know individual women's careers are being stymied because they're not given a platform but because it because manuals are worse yeah that's why we don't like manuals they're worse and of course also it means that women's careers are being stifled because those are well, also opportunities for great uh, well for platforming different voices and people need them for opportunities but i fully agree with uh, with joe that we need to think about about the structure about how we actually participate within that kind of structure far too often we we try to uh, treat the individual uh, or individual women as as the problem that needs to be fixed so therefore actually encouraging women to behave like men have traditionally behaved uh, so the whole lean-in agenda when actually um, the the problem is much broader and um, just coaching and mentoring women is not sufficient but it is one about about representation, both symbolic as well as substantive. But also, it's about breaking out of the silo and say that those are issues that matter, and there are uh, issues of high politics. And we, as feminist scholars, can make a substantive contribution to understanding. I don't know, from defense to security to finance to law, etc., from a different perspective that actually increases our depth of knowledge rather than waters it down. Mm-hmm. Thank you, both of you, okay. for oh, that. Thank you. I think it's you know. I'm again. I'm 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 also aware that this is not uh, any kind of resolution. But I think it, it, you know, for me, it's been very helpful to to get that elaboration, that discussion around this in, in the rounds, uh, as well as in the more specific kind of kind of element. So thank you both for your time and your thoughts. Lots of points are taken, and uh, lots of work still to be done by myself and by many others. So Always thank here you. to help you, Simon. Always. <laughs> thank you very much.